Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, here is part two of the Richard Rohr podcast about the divine dance. So uh, if you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to check that one out. And uh, you'll also wait to the end and you'll hear some from Mike Morrell. We have a second uh, about 10 minutes or so with Mike Morell, who helped Richard Rohr write this book. And just FYI, in the background of this podcast is our friend Paul Nevison from Down Under. And I think he even asks a question at the end of this uh, first part with Rohr. So uh, Richard Rohr, a little cameo from Paul Nevison, and then also 10 minutes with Mike Morell at the end. Uh, enjoy. So it starts with life. Starts. Okay. And, and li- our definition for life is Trinity. It's communion, it's relationship, it's the atom, yeah. it's connection. Okay, so you say one line in the book that kind of freaks me out a little bit, and we say, when as, I don't remember exactly, but something to the extent of when or if it happens that they find life on other planets. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. This view, this Trinitarian view is sustainable, whereas the, you know, just saving this earth falls apart. Question, I know you live in New Mexico, but do you have inside information to know that that's going to happen soon? <laughs> Why did you include that? Well, you know, isn't it funny? Just two weeks ago, there was this <laughs> radio signals. It was on the evening news. This was national evening news. Really? There are radio signals coming. Now they've been sort of disproved. Uh, listen, I'm not, because I live in New Mexico, <laughs> close to Roswell, I'm not into aliens or anything like that. But after having said that, mm-hmm. I mean, now that we know there are not billions of stars, but billions of galaxies. In fact, they go so far as to say six galaxies for every human being on this planet. That's which your mind cannot imagine. You cannot think that. We can't think infinite thought. Just statistically, if there is a life generating this entire thing that showed itself in the moment we call the Big Bang, then um, statistically, it's likely that we are going to discover life. I don't care if we do, I don't care if we don't. Mm-hmm. But given the chance that we will in the even foreseeable future, you do realize that an entire salvation history that's based on a sin committed between the Tigris and Euphrates River in, on this planet, mm-hmm. and Jesus had to come to save life just on this planet, mm-hmm. if we don't d- discover the cosmic Christ, which... If God Gives Me the Years is going to be my next book. Uh, We're in trouble. The Christian religion will die in a 10-year period because the whole storyline will be unbelievable if we have a universal meta-narrative. You know, that something bigger is happening here Mm -hmm. that doesn't depend on this earth. It's a mystery, right? So at the moment of the Big Bang, God decided to manifest God's self. Show yourself. Let there be light, huh? Let me let them be able to see what I look like. And that's creation. Mm -hmm. Now, we're the first generation that understands, because of the Hubble telescope, that this universe is still still expanding, and it's expanding at an ever faster rate even. We know that no scientist disagrees with that today. So they just counted back from when did this expansion begin, and they coined this phrase, the Big Bang. Yeah. So we would now. I'm t- looking at the same. They're looking at it as a physicist. I'm looking at it as a theologian. I call that the manifestation of the Christ, right? Uh, the Christ mystery. Now, early Eastern fathers, 
because they already intuited this, they said you have to ask the question. I'm not answering the question, but I'm going to ask it. Is the universe eternal? Now, our mind can't think that. But they said you at least have to ask the question. Is this universe eternal? Coterminous with the eternality of God. If the Christ always was, mm -hmm. do you see? Then, oh, of course, we can't think something that always was. That's, My brain's yeah, your brain just right fries at a rate that, that I moment. can't comprehend. But do know that we we very quickly, it, we have to have a, a God who is at least bigger than what God created. Let's just put it that way. All right. And what that's we, good. And what, that's yeah, really good. Yeah. And if we have what we're discovering now, and, and your generation that are growing up so smart and going to university classes about the nature of the universe, they just can't believe in a tiny God anymore. Yeah. Our God has to be bigger than the universe we know. And that's what's, that's what's so discouraging just, about the, like um, an atonement-based view oh, yeah. of God oh, because yeah. it just reduces God to, a problem you sin, solver. there's a problem, Jesus fixes it. Yeah. And that, that's God? Like that's, God? That's all God is? There's no magnificent positive vision for this whole revelation. It's just a problem that was solved by a sin committed between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's just a transaction. It's, it, transaction. Yeah, just, yeah. It doesn't transform you. Problem solving does not excite the soul. It doesn't. Uh, but you do know, you think we, we went that direction just because you know the ego goes towards conflict and fixing a problem? Is that why you think it, it egressed into that? You've heard me. Did we talk in previous about the spiral dynamics, the levels... We of, never have, actually. Oh, the levels uh, of consciousness. I don't think we have. And much of history was the magical level of consciousness, mm -hmm. you know? Many of the books of the Bible, I'm not denying their inspiration, please, but they're at the purple level of consciousness. Kill all the Canaanites in sight, women and children. Do you really think Yahweh said that? I don't think so. I, I, Israel said that, you know? And they projected it onto God, Yeah. You know? There's highly, highly violent, regressive, stupid passages in the Bible. Oh, forgive me, but I have to say it. We got to get beyond this. Yeah, genocide is and, bad. And, yeah, and recognize that the Bible is, is written at all the levels of consciousness that we've gone through the purple, the red, the blue, mm. the orange. Well, it isn't written at the orange. That happened in our lifetime where we became rational, mm -hmm. which is why people raised after rationality throughout the Bible. Because none of the Bible was written at the orange level of consciousness, the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th mm -hmm. century. Much less the pluralistic green level, where I guess, I, I hope I'm at the green level. Green level is believes all men are created equal in mm -hmm. sin. It's, it's this love of pluralism and equality. Mm -hmm. We only got to that in the 1960s, you know? Yeah. So the Bible, you know as well as I, even Jesus and Paul, do not take slavery on head on. No. You know, they accept it. As the, they can't imagine a world created in any other way because that's how people thought. Basic, well, how many millions of people are still enslaved on this planet? Because no. um, a lot of people, a lot of cultures are still, and individuals are still at the purple and red levels where everything is based on power and violence and magic. Mm -hmm. magical gods that push buttons and save you. and So the reason I'm saying that is everything is transactional at the purple and, and red levels of consciousness, the lower levels. Mm -hmm. 
When you get to higher levels, especially the mystical levels, it's all transformational. It's not transactional. Yeah. That you, oh my God, something is going on here that's changing my very soul. It's changing my very heart. Mm -hmm. It's changing my very psyche. It's not a substitutionary penal atonement theory that explains how God could love us. It's I'm experiencing God's infinite love, yeah. which changes you. See? So in the book, you reference the work of Pete Enns, and I think you quote, uh, or, or you footnote, um, oh, what is it, inspiration, incarnation? Anyway, Pete Enns, his heart exploded with love, because I know how much he appreciates your work when that happened. So his, his, his soul is full because you reference his work. How um, did he find out? He, he doesn't. I don't know. I'll, oh, I'll send him a message oh, after this and tell him. But he's, on the, he's, he's a regular oh, on the podcast. So but he, he loves your work. But, but his stuff of um, trying to understand like those texts of terrors, Robert Brown Taylor calls them, like the conquest narrative of yeah. like, how do you make sense of that? Joshua and Judges are purple Yeah, the, level, the purple whole book level. of Judges is just <laughs> disgusting in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, I think as people try to process that, it's, it's easier for them to think that God did something that we would all call wrong, like genocide, mm-hmm. than to think that the Bible could it's get God inspired. wrong. Yeah. yeah. And so it's easier for them to think God does awful things than to say that the Bible might have gotten wrong how they understand God. Now, I think to fully elaborate Enz's argument is another day for, in another time, another podcast. Mm-hmm. But the nature of inspiration is that it comes in sure. carnation. Like it's, it's fleshed where we are. And so... The Word of God in the words of people. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is incorporated into the solution. In other words, inside the Bible are regressive texts Mm -hmm. because that's the nature of reality. It's filled with imperfection. It's filled with getting it and losing it, getting it and losing it. And the losing it texts are in the Bible. But you will, a spirit-led person will just develop a third eye for that. I don't need to throw out the Bible Mm -hmm. because Joshua and Judges are in there because I've lived days of my life, I'm ashamed to admit, where I've been Joshua. You yep. understand? Yep. <laughs> and that's in the text where, oh, this is me too, and God is still saving Joshua yep. and so loving Joshua. Yeah. So if you just always remember, the, God's perfection is the ability to include imperfection. Hmm. We don't know how to do that. So we want to exclude Joshua and Judges, Leviticus, and Numbers. No, leave them in. Let's leave them in there. Yeah. Because it's all part of the story. They're part of the story. Yeah. And so Jesus obviously is the quintessential view of who God is in the Bible. Like, if you want to know what God's like, you go to Jesus. And you don't see Jesus encouraging genocide. You don't see Jesus, you know, mistreating people. Being exclusionary, being an imperialist. He's welcoming everyone. Being racist, being all of the things that are killing the world. You don't see in Jesus. So uh, thank you for giving me a chance to say that. If people think I'm minimizing Jesus, quite the contrary. I mean, the Jesus hermeneutic is the key to interpreting the whole Bible, to interpret the Bible the way Jesus did. Yeah. And, and, and so Jesus and the Trinity, is you, this is the personal one. This is the one That's right. that we connect. And so I don't think the issue, and I, I, as I understand your work, you agree that the issue isn't for us to connect with Jesus. It's that Jesus needs to get back in with the rest of the Trinity. Yes, and, and We've that's where he wants to take us. Of course. I am going back to take you with me. He mm-hmm. says this. Yeah, you know? he does in John. It's in a number of passages in John's Gospel. So this inclusion narrative is very biblical. And let me, I said some bad things about the gospel, John, earlier. We've worked our problems out. We're on good footing. (laughs) We're friends again. I like that. 
I also liked in the book where you talk about why we never pray to Jesus. Yeah, like we pray through Jesus. Yeah, there's. You said there's no prayers to Jesus in the official liturgical prayers of the Catholic, Episcopal, Orthodox churches, mm-hmm. which go back to the early centuries, of course. All the prayers in through Christ our Lord. Amen. Because why? Because prayer is rightly addressed to the Father in the Spirit through this medium, and I'm the body of Christ. So I'm standing here in persona Christi. The Spirit is praying in me to the Father, as Romans 8 would say. Mm-hmm. You know? So all prayers to keep the correct symmetry, if I can use that word, of Trinitarian prayer. Mm-hmm. Prayer is rightfully addressed to the Father in the Spirit through Christ. Yeah. Through so Christ w- we're used to the idea that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus when it comes to our it's transgressions good. and our it's wrongdoing. Yeah. Help us get from there to we pray as Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. I think the line was because we don't pray to Christ because you are Christ you are to God. Christ. That's right. That's okay, right. get us there. How, how are you? Well, again, this wasn't made clear in a lot of theology because, remember, grace was always extraneous to the universe. It was always an additive. Yeah. And so we didn't see this as organically uh, united. You know, those two verses that are used in Genesis 1, 26, 27 are image and likeness. From about the 10th to the 12th century, every doctor in theology in Europe had to write a commentary on what those words meant, image and likeness. Image was the objective identity of you as a child of God. You can't lose it. You can't get it because you got it. It's, mm-hmm. You're home free. Right. Likeness. This was the final consensus by the 12th century. Likeness is your subjective personal appropriation of your objective identity in God. It's a brilliant distinction. Hmm. Now, uh, the Protestant tradition so emphasized the whole holiness movement of gaining this likeness by behavior and obeying commandments and going to church and so forth that it lost the image tradition almost entirely. It had almost no teaching on the inherent objective image of God that you carry and that I carry and that Hitler carried and that Saddam Hussein carried. They objectively, till the moment they died, were created in the image of God. Do you understand? Now, they didn't appropriate the likeness. This is absolutely crucial for for the restoration of the gospel. To make that distinction and to recognize that Protestantism in particular, and a lot of mainline Catholicism, has a lot of work to make up for because Mm -hmm. it hasn't emphasized this objective creation in the image of God since the beginnings of its history. Hmm. It just never had. So when I talk about the mystical tradition or the mystics, I'm talking about those people who believe in our objective identity in God, apart from your behavior. You know, it's the most radical notion of grace you can have. Yeah. You know, in that image of the, the icon, can you give me that book there? Yeah. Well, Thanks, unfortunately, Paul. the colors aren't here. They're going to be in the final edition of the book. The colors? The colors. Uh, oh. I, I talk about them inside. That the Father oh, is yeah, yeah, yeah. dressed in gold. The, the sun is blue, the, uh, the sky and the, the sea with green? the red of blood. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit is in green. And now, of course, again in our age... We have the scientific understanding of photosynthesis. 
that everything is green in the universe, you know, that here's evolution again, that grows from the inside out by transforming sunlight into itself. Every single growing thing translates sunlight into itself, you know. Is that an image of grace or not? But the transformer is inside the plant, you know, mm -hmm. inside the leaf. You know? And that Rublev seemed to intuit this uh, by painting the Holy Spirit green. Huh? So the Holy Spirit is that which greens everything, grows everything, connects everything. Huh? Yeah. So that's the last third of the book where you talk about the Holy Spirit, which has been in most of our churches. The lost person of the Blessed Trinity. Yeah. The Father was missing in action. The The Holy Spirit was just forgotten. Yeah. yeah. You said until uh, the shack that there hasn't been much on the Holy Spirit. At the popular level, there hasn't been really since the fourth century. Yeah. It's a long time. It's a, Yeah. None of us would have denied the Trinity or denied the Spirit. But, you know, again, we didn't know how to read metaphors this descending bird, forgive me, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but we didn't, people didn't know what to do with that. How yeah. do you relate to a bird? How do you fall in love with a bird? And we didn't understand that all religious language is metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then we said, okay, the idea of descending from nowhere, given out of pure air as a bird descends, in fact, it connotes a lot of good messages. You know? Yeah, I've always thought that it was easier uh, for your side of the aisle to to be comfortable with the the idea that all all understandings and descriptions of God are, are metaphors. Yes, and that there is a more comfortable attitude with the imagination required yeah, to connect those more. things. So that that's what differentiates the Catholic mind from the Protestant mind. Yeah. And there, uh, one reason for it is, of course, and you know this, that God bless Luther, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary next month. Uh, but it was coterminous, his life, with the invention of the printing press. Mm -hmm. So Protestantism emerged in the same period where we begin to read words on paper. Uh, yeah. Most people were illiterate up to that time, because why would you need to read? You had yeah. no need to read. So the, the Catholic and Orthodox churches emerged in that 1,500-year period when most people couldn't read. Uh, yeah. So we had to have a different access point. So we had things like statues and cathedrals and chants and, mm -hmm. and incense and candles, which all looks like pagan to you. But actually what it is is right brain because the left brain hadn't highly developed yet. So... A pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela was the way I searched for God, you know? Hmm. Now, to you, it might sound like, oh, did they take the Bible with them on the way? <laughs> but you know what's weird for me is that after having the deconstruction of the very, um, you know, literal, uh, you know, historical, grammatical critique of the Bible and all that stuff, what I found to be the things that connect me most to God are now not... Not that it's it's having to go to the, you know, the, the imagination, the, yeah. the mystics, and the mystics are the ones that connect right. to me. Right. Whereas the you know the dense theological treaty, there's a place for it. It's helpful. There is a place for it. I couldn't talk the way I talk if I didn't like you studied formal. But theology. okay, you've you, we, yeah. we've talked about this before in this very room that 
you've suggested that the best way to grow up is conservative. Yes, and it's, to start. To start conservative. To start. Mm-hmm. It, to start conservative. And I wonder if that same practice, I don't want to say best, but a benefit of growing wow. up like this is like the jazz musician who learns all the rules so that they can eventually break them. Break the rules. Yeah, and yeah. the same thing with theology. is like you learn in a very yeah. rigid um, formulaic mm. kind of understanding at first, mm. and then you, you get your feet underneath you, and then you have the... Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. It creates the container. Then you've got to beat your way out of that box, and a lot of people don't. They worship the box. They stay there. Yeah, that's the trouble. They stay there. And we did the same thing with the Catholic box. You, any, and Jesus is criticizing the scribes and Pharisees who have done that with his religion. You yeah. They worship the container and never get to the contents. Because like all organizations revert back to status quo, and the yeah. container keeps things yeah. the way it is, and so we want to just worship the container. Yeah. So true. The ego hates change, hates change. Would the ego hate if we changed this subject and talked about the father now? No, go right ahead. Can we do that? Did you like that transition, Paul? That's a professional. Okay, here's the quote. I think I referenced this earlier. But when we pull God out of the heavens, we suffer from a real transcendent deficit. It's why cheap liberalism gives an entire spiritual generation with no ability to, among other things, bow, honor, or worship. Yes. It loses the yes. transforming power. Yes. And so you talked about that the lack of the apophatic tradition has caused an eclipse of the Father. Now, we're going to need to unpack that because that's yeah, a pretty dense a sentence right heavy. there. Where do I start with that? Um, Let's start with the defining apophatic, the, the part, tradition that says you part. can't... So if you look at the, the biblical understanding of faith, go, take all the stories, there's always a balancing of knowing with not knowing. Mm-hmm. Knowing is where it's clear, it's, it's certain, it's right, it's defined, it's visual. Uh, uh, maybe the ones stories you'd remember, the two great theophanies on Mount Tabor and Mount Sinai, where God reveals God's self, but in both cases it's covered with a cloud, right? The cloud yeah. over, yeah. So we have both knowing and not knowing in, kept in good balance. Mm-hmm. What happened after the Enlightenment and the, the printing press is we became enamored with knowing. Mm-hmm. And we especially wanted not to appear stupid to all these smart Germans and French people and English-speaking people in Europe who were so intelligent and so educated, and we didn't like being called stupid. So we became enamored ourselves with knowing and with certain knowing and lost the much deeper, full-access knowing that the Bible calls faith. Where, believe it or not, if you can know something, but know that your knowing is imperfect, as Paul says in Corinthians, all knowledge is imperfect, and actually be free not to have to know, you will be a much happier person, and you will move to a deeper level of contentment that is its own kind of knowing. Mm-hmm. And I've seldom taught that to people, that they don't nod, just like both of you are. It's, yeah. Like, I'm sure you've had little spats with your wife, and, and okay, I don't understand her, but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt because I love her, and maybe someday I'll figure out how a woman's mind works. You know what I mean? I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> to me. That is your apophatic love of your wife. Honey, I can't say, well, you probably wouldn't say this to a bit inside. <laughs> I don't really agree with you. I don't really understand what you're saying, 
But my love for you is going to override that for right my now. My wife does say that to me, though. <laughs> that's, and that's very true. Really? Well, she, yeah, yeah, she acknowledges. She, Luke, you're one weird individual. I do not understand you. And she still loves you, yeah. Yeah, uh, which see, is, that's, see, that's a miracle. That's the apophatic tradition, right? If you want to when you can balance knowing with not knowing and still give yourself to it. Yeah. I don't think you can love anything. I mean, your precious little girls, I'm sure they still disappoint you. I wish you wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't think of withdrawing your love from them. Mm-hmm. I don't know why she's this way. I don't know why she's a one on the Enneagram. Uh, but she is, and I'm going to overlook that. You know, yep. I'm not going to be able to fix it, change it, even understand it. So you can psychologize this, and it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. But the, I'm not, you know I'm not trying to be anti-Protestant, but the Protestant period had no training, no training in the apophatic tradition. Yeah, no, I, my... It was all knowing, 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 knowing. Yeah. And I can speak specifically yeah. to my experience, and it's definitely been that. True, and that's why, yeah. you know, the mystics have been so, so life-giving important. to yeah. me is because they've given me a different way, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm very grateful yeah. for that. And so, yes, the, and... Moving past that generation that has no ability to honor and worship, if if it's not just penal substitution, which mm-hmm. does give you a reason to worship, a reason, yeah. But if you realize, okay, that's not the whole entirety of it, mm-hmm. um, you have to find another reason. And yeah. the, the liberal problem is that you don't have one, mm-hmm. and yeah. and this kind of pulls even it back worse, together. Yeah, even worse. I, yeah, I think you'd be. It's better to be the a liberal. Refuses any container. You know. Do you think that's why the this is my take, is that the conservative church is uh, more stable and healthy, whereas the liberal church struggles more, um, even in just the basic yeah. uh, it dollars. It has something and... that it's excited about. You know, Einstein said the first religious instinct, the primary religious instinct is wonder and awe. Yeah. And you just, if there's nothing you want to kneel and kiss the ground before, which a liberal usually doesn't, this is the orange level of, or the green level of consciousness. Very sophisticated, very smart, correct politically, but not in love with anything. Uh, it's incapable of ecstasy. Yeah. Incapable of, of humility, too. Yeah. And the conservatives beat on both counts. Yeah. I think that's why so many evangelicals listen to me. And I have evangelical ministers coming here all the time, more than far more than Catholics, because you began with that solid container of wonder and awe. Now, you took away the mystery, but you still felt there was something there that was worth crying over, kneeling and kissing the ground over, and that's good. Yeah, I find myself... Yeah, and first of all, that's why I've been coming here multiple times, and that's why last fall that I brought you know a dozen evangelical pastors out here because... Well, that's right. You brought a group, yeah, didn't I did. you? Yeah, yeah. You're another one. Okay. Yeah, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm one <laughs> of those forgot. groups of pastors. I forgot. Yeah. But okay. what what this idea has helped me do is to see the transcendent in things that I wouldn't have an emotional yes. response to before. Yes. Where it was before, it was I feel really guilty, and then I'm forgiven. I'll cry for that. Okay, I'll have the emotional no. connection. But you know, for me, last Sunday, it's. Uh, you know, seeing a guy being baptized, mm. and like this is this is the family, this is the body, this is someone finding uh, God's love in this community. Like that's very meaningful to me. Yes. Like, that's that, and I and I yeah. see it in things that wouldn't before have connected me to mm-hmm. to the transcendence of God. Yeah. So you've got a head start in that, and I would do nothing but uh, praise that. 
even though that also has to be deconstructed because it's too limited, the sacred. It doesn't see the sacred everywhere. Exactly, yeah. But at least it can get excited about the sacred somewhere. Yeah. Whereas I don't think many of my liberal friends can see the sacred anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. Anywhere. Yeah. So uh, I think C.S. Lewis has a line that... Uh, God is nowhere absent, but God is always around us. And then Joan of Arc has the line, it's not that the voice of God doesn't speak to you, you just fail to listen. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this idea that like, you know, God is always around mm-hmm. you. And that's, yeah, and that's what your work has helped me oh, thank try to wrestle you. with. You've been listening well. Well, I don't know about that, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm trying. So you say with the, the penal substitution theory of God is a risky theory. So we're trying to view the Father, yeah. and when that's the only model, it's risky because it reduces God's freedom to love and act towards God's creation the way that God wants to. Mm-hmm. And it validates violence all the way down. If God can demand violence to save the world, mm-hmm. then there is such a thing as good violence. Do you understand? That's and true. That's what's happened, yeah. that there is such a thing as good violence. Yeah. And if you have a God who can torture people for all eternity, you've tortured, you've validated torture all the way down, you see. So the whole thing of God achieving goodness by punishment, it's just unworkable. Yeah. And now psychology is helping us see this, because we see this that over-punitive parents do not create loving children. You know, They might create obedient children. Yes. Obedient, but not loving. Have yeah. you heard of Andrew Newberg? Newberg, yeah. yeah. He's done great research on meditation. How, how God changes your brain. And I think it's from him that he says that you know, a, a wrathful, angry God is great for behavior modification. Yeah. But a compassionate, loving God is great for making you becoming compassionate. Now, it seems that there is a more loving, compassionate God in the more progressive liberal church, but in terms of which group is maybe more moral, uh, it seems that probably it's the conservative that have the more... Yes, that's true. Because maybe they are still motivated by the lower level of motivation, fear of hell or something like that, but that keeps you in order. That's why I still say it's the best place to start, to learn the rules Mm -hmm. and to learn how to obey the rules, to let go of your basic egocentricity and narcissism. That there's some laws I have to conform to to get rid of my narcissism. But then to know that God actually loves you even when you disobey the rule, you're probably only ready for that around 35 or so. Yeah, when, when my daughters are teenagers, there is going to be a lot of hellfire and brimstone. We, especially when they start driving and boys come around. That's, that's really going to be the sermons for those. The typical father. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am. Okay, your line is that humans change not by debt payment, but by love mirroring. So if you really want transformation and not just behavior modification, it's a story of, of God's self-emptying love yeah. Yeah, and yeah. seeing that. That's good. All holiness is reflected holiness. I'm glad you introduced the word mirror, which I use in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so many saints use the metaphor of the mirror. Uh, when you allow yourself to be seen and reflected back, and perfectly received in the in the mirror on the other side. That's how you grow in terms of the soul. Yeah. It's not transactional. And you know this in terms of deeper falling in love with your wives, with your children. It's this mutual gazing. Uh, my dog here, she will maintain my eye contact much longer with me than I can maintain. She'll just look at me with complete adoration 
And I always wonder, what is she thinking? What's going on? But it's uh, when John's Gospel says, you must gaze upon the one you have pierced. This whole gazing upon the cross and seeing myself in the crucified Jesus is just classic Catholic spirituality, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and it, it, th- for that many people to have spoken of it so strongly, it can't be wrong. You know what I mean? That it, it ha- they don't talk moralistically. They don't talk about guilt. They don't talk about shame. They don't talk about fear of hell. It's all about just receiving the gaze, mm-hmm. you know, and returning the gaze. And the, the line that's most quoted in our mystical tradition is from the German Dominican Meister Eckhart, the eyes with which we look back at God are the very same eyes with which God first looked at us. So the, very, the eyes with which we look back mm. at God are the very same set of eyes with which God looked at us. When you complete the circuit, that's when you start growing, I think, in the real spiritual journey. But do you see how that positions it on a completely different basis than guilt about your sin? Yeah. Even though I think most of us have to start there. Yep. To to make, to understand that sense of otherness, uh, you know, uh, and then when you find that this absolute other is more loyal to my soul than I am to him or her or it, uh, that's when the love affair begins. Do you understand yeah. that this transcendent one? could love me unconditionally, even when I haven't earned it. That's, that's really step one of Christianity. Up to that point, it's paganism. It's pagan religion. It really yeah. is. But you've got to start there. You've got to start there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the book is uh, The Divine Dance, and it's going to be out soon. People should get it. Uh, Paul, you're dying over there with a question. I know you, as a five, you really want to be the spotlight. Uh, <laughs> You know, this is your chance. You can ask. It's my, it's my chance. No, I was just thinking. Um, so, it's, um, so Picasso said uh, he, he said that art is the lie that makes us realize the truth. And what is the lie? Art. When he talked about he talked, oh. art is the lie that makes us realize. Your R is so different. <laughs> I know. I know. Accents. <laughs> I got it. Shout out! Is... Shout out to all the Australasians. Um, but it's, you know, because art being the lie in the sense that it's an approximation of what's true. And I wonder if that's what we've done with religion, that religion is the lie that makes us realise the truth, that, that eventually, like, it, it's, wow. it's the signpost that, it, you know, it's not... We, we go that's through all excellent. these religious stuff to... Excellent. That points us beyond yeah. it. We almost have to be disillusioned with religion, even though it got us started. Boy, that's... That makes sense. I and mean, what else happens to Paul on the Damascus Road? You know, have you ever heard that quote from that wonderful French philosopher Blaise Pascal? No person does evil more completely and carefully than they do it with a religious conviction. Hmm. <laughs> more completely and more cheerfully. That's it. More than if they can do it with a religious conviction. Yeah. And that's what we've got to see about our own religion, what Paul saw on the Damascus Road. This has not really made me love God or my neighbor. It's all been love of myself. And it's, in fact, allowed me to do some very selfish things while thinking I was doing a holy duty for God, as John 16 says. Thank you. Good addition. 
Thank you for bringing some wisdom from down under. <laughs> I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, you say that uh, as a younger man, you wanted to be just like St. Francis. Yeah. Well, which is obviously why you went yeah, into you this order. The hero. Yeah. And so you wanted to be a saint like St. Like yes. Francis. Well, I've got some good news for you. Uh, just last week or the week before, I was talking with uh, Father James Martin. Oh, who, yeah. who endorses this book, mm-hmm. and um, we discussed... Did you go to New York? No, I didn't. Oh. I, you can't tell everyone that I go to see you, because I don't do that for everyone else. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank well, you. don't tell anyone. Okay, okay. Well, this is through Skype. We're all not right, in person. Right, Skype. Um, but I asked what we need to do to start a campaign to get you to become a saint as well. And, uh, and so he's, I think there's an email chain or something. I don't know how it works, but <laughs> he's a dear friend. I talked God him up. It. So I think he's on board. He voted for it. You saw the beautiful blurb he wrote for this. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's not on this. I, there was, it's in there somewhere, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank well, uh, good work. Good talk. We've got, um, the co-author Mike Morell on. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you, Luke? I'm good. Now, you had the amazing ability to convince Richard Rohr that he, despite having published like a billion books, needed you a part of this project. <laughs> so I don't know how you did that, but well done to you. <laughs> well, thanks. I don't, I don't know about need, but, um, <laughs> you know, about a dozen years ago, Richard did two conferences. One was called The Divine Dance and the other was called The Shape of God. And both of those had a really big impact on me, my own spiritual formation, how I saw God uh, as, as different, like an orthodox yet subversive alternative to the prevalent view of the sort of Baptist, Pentecostal, Calvinist God of my upbringing, which was more like uh, Zeus than like the all-vulnerable, all-mutual three-in-one that yeah. is depicted in the Trinity. And I really loved that. I wanted to see that turned into a book. I work in publishing. I do some writing, some ghost writing. So I approached him uh, somewhat ignorantly because I thought that he used ghost writers on a regular basis. And uh, that probably is the only reason I was bold enough to, <laughs> to approach him about this. But I said, hey, you know, there are these conferences. Um, would love to turn them into a book because a good friend of mine, uh, Don Milan, he's the acquisitions editor at Whitaker House, the publisher. And, and Don also was deeply impacted by Richard's work, especially when his wife passed away a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, Richard's work on the spirituality in the second half of life really touched him. So even though Whitaker House is more of a charismatic publisher, mm-hmm. uh, both Don and the publishing house was very interested in working with Richard. So I approached him and he said, you know, I don't normally work with ghost writers. They're usually, you know, more trouble than they're worth. But, you know, I, I'm willing to give it a shot. Why don't you give me a few sample chapters? Yeah. So, well, first of all, like, how great it is to have an excuse to have to interact with Richard Rohr and to listen to his <laughs> material and, and read his write. I mean, that in itself was probably uh, just an amazing opportunity. It's true. It's true. You know, uh, Richard was a, uh, a dishwashing companion for years anyway, listening to his conferences uh-huh. and yeah. uh, yeah, to be able to be even more intentional about that was uh, was really awesome. Uh, yeah, I I bet I heard. You know, we I don't know if he said this on air. He might have. So I think I can say it. But like his next book, what he had thought about writing about, I was going, mm-hmm. hey, if you're in this business of getting co-authors or ghostwriters, <laughs> uh, I want to just kind of huddle up and get to the front of that line, man, because that sounds like a blast. Uh huh. But okay, so, so you um, 
Did you you have a background uh, with um, with Wild Goose? Weren't you one of the founders of that or something? Uh huh. Yeah, I was one of the founding organizers of the Wild Goose Festival. It was uh, you know Gareth Higgins, myself, a um, woman named Laurel Meath, and Jacob Kuntz, and we were the original team getting that off the ground. Did you ever get Roar to come out to that? Oh, we sure did. Yeah, he came out to the first two Wild Goose Festivals. But how I initially met Richard was years ago. I worked with Spencer Burke. Uh, uh-huh. on the website, theooze.com, yes. and Spencer organized these learning parties called Solarize. So I first came out to a Solarize in 2002, young kid out in Minneapolis. It was my first sort of, you know, that wasn't even called emergent back then, my, my first sort of postmodern Christianity event. And the year before that, uh, Spencer had had Richard out in 2001 in Seattle. And to my knowledge, it was Spencer who introduced Richard to the sort of progressive, postmodern, emergent Christian scene. So it was 2001. I know I'm pretty sure that's when he first met Brian McLaren, other folks who were out at Solarize. So very early on, when I started working with Spencer, we started working with Richard. Yeah. Well, Richard said one of the things that you helped do um, was kind of package the book in such a way that it was more accessible, especially to like a younger audience. Um, mm-hmm. like the, the headings and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that's amazing because you know, he's in his 70s and he's, uh, I would assume, thinking about like how does my work transcend my own lifetime here? And so it's mm-hmm. great to have someone like yourself who's working on that. Um, my dog just tried to break into this conversation. He's that excited about wow. the book. Yeah. You know, well, Richard is a Franciscan and like the <laughs> animals see the good news that's inherent in the divine dance. That makes sense to your dog. That, first of all, well done on that plug. Like, I'm, I, really, I really respect that a lot. Okay, so when you're hearing him talk about this, you're talking to your buddy at the publishing house. You go, hey, we want to pitch this to you. Um, mm-hmm. This change, like, you said you grew up in a more conservative background, and this is more, like, a bigger, more robust picture of the Trinity. What are you mm-hmm. hoping that this does for that, that maybe younger audience who hasn't read Roar before? Yeah, I hope it gives them options and alternatives because, you know, I grew up conservative as did a number of my friends. These days, I would say a lot of those friends are atheists. Like they felt like it was what they grew up with or nothing. And those images of God were no longer credible to them. You know, just this week, uh, Pew Research released yet more information and data on the rise of the religiously unaffiliated. And I thought what they said was interesting. They said, yes, some people are leaving church because of hypocrisy. Yes, some are leaving because of sex abuse. Yes, some are leaving because of LGBT um, you know, persecution and nonsense. But a lot of them simply aren't finding the narrative credible. A lot of them simply stop believing. And I think that the image of God that, that we show that's rooted in Scripture, rooted in the intuitions of our best poets and mystics and, and theologians through the ages, uh, it's just such a, a radical departure from the God that mo- more and more of us are finding not credible. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think one of the things that probably be most uh, credible or compelling is the idea that, like, the Trinity, this, this, the Godhead is an invitation for us to participate in, and it's already all around us. Mm-hmm. I, like, that's the thing when I'm reading the book, going, that, that's what I'm going to hold on to, is that it's all around. How, how do you think, I don't know if that's y- your same touch point for you think would be most meaningful to them, but w- what do you think it is about that idea of the Trinity, of being relational, about being connected, that would be different from what others have understood about the Trinity? 
I, I think that oftentimes uh, conversations about the Trinity are so dry and boring and they end up becoming a divine math problem or like trying to, I don't know, peek into God's dressing room to see what the private life of God is, is like. <laughs> what we're yeah. describing is more of this perspective of, you know, how did the early uh, church wrestle with the idea of being good monotheists, yet recognizing the inherent divinity of, of Jesus and this like mysterious working of what they started naming Holy Spirit. And, you know, it was by the third century out in these caves in Turkey when the uh, Cappadocian mothers and fathers were like, hey, you know, we're actually going to borrow some terms from drama and dance and, and look at this idea of, of personare, of paraparesis, of, of a circle dance, and of these masks that convey something of reality, but they're highly interdependent. It was such a brilliant sort of mystical, metaphysical move for them to see oneness of God uh, maintaining, retaining its original meaning, but also expanding to include multiplicity. And I think it really uh, plays with some interesting appeal to more Eastern paths that do tend to emphasize the oneness of all reality, mm-hmm. while also honoring the Western intuition that it's not all flattened out. It's not all, distinction is not erased. So you have the one and the many in this sort of creative tension with each other and and if, if as God is, so we are, well, then maybe that says something really hopeful about us, that we can be diverse and yet one, which I think is really good news in this like complicated, messy election season, all this you know horrible stuff going on with ongoing police shootings that we're seeing in the news. Like, what is a way we can honor difference but also have true unity? And I think Trinity can offer a beautiful spiritual key for that. Yeah, that's good. There's, a, there's an old story about it's not that old, actually, uh, a couple of decades old, about uh, Rabbi uh, Abraham Heschel going to some of the conferences after Vatican II came out and mm. being asked, like, what do you think about this by, like, Karl Rahner and some of the other prominent figures in that, that uh, uh, the Vatican II uh, changes? And his response was, uh, your people are asking for bread and you're giving them stones. Like, it's just too mm. abstract. It doesn't connect with felt needs. And often, mm. like, the discussions that I've experienced about Trinity is that it's, you know, it's 3-1, it's, it's uh, this complex mystery that you can't really understand, but it remains just like an abstract idea. And what I loved about what you guys did was you offered something that's an invitation for us to participate in. And I liked how you talked about, like, the, the tension and the, um, you know, the binary us versus them polarization of the very partisan political environment of our country. And this is, a, mm-hmm. is an offer and an invitation to be part of something far more uh, inclusive. And I love that. And uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like you need to go get the tattoo of Rublev's icon on your arm after, <laughs> after reading this book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Rublev's icon is just such a rich picture of this like table fellowship, this inclusion. And I had never heard um, until working with Richard on this project the, the speculation that there may have been a mirror yeah. on, you know, glued onto the icon that was indicating that we're included and like really driving that point home. It's a, it's, I know you have, probably if you're listening to this, you haven't read the book yet, but there's you a, should a go read section. it. Go read it. I, I have <laughs> and, 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 now. I've, yeah. I've got a friend who's got his name's Richard Beck who's got a tattoo of that kind of, uh, of the hospitality of Abraham on his arm. And I'm like, he, he needs to come on my wrap up podcast just because he has the tattoo that's connected to the Absolutely. book. Yeah. He's earned it. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't know that Richard had that tattoo. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Full circle there. Well, Hey, I've got to run right now, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this and 
man, well done in the book. Like, it really is so good. And uh, I, I know there's high hopes for what this book's going to do, and I hope that it really does have the ability to connect to a lot of people because it's really it's good news. So thanks, Mike. Mm, thank, yeah, thank you, Luke. It was a joy to work on. Great chatting with you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.